Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth by Ludwig von Mises Introduction There are many socialists who have never come to grips in any way with the problems of economics and who have made no attempt at all to form for themselves any clear conception of the conditions which determine the character of human society. There are others who have probed deeply into the economic history of the past and present, and striven on this basis to construct a theory of economics of the bourgeois society. They have criticized freely enough the economic structure of free society, but have consistently neglected to apply to the economics of the disputed socialist state the same caustic acumen which they have revealed elsewhere not always with success. Economics as such figures all too sparsely in the glamorous pictures painted by the utopians. They invariably explain how, in the cloud-cuckoo lands of their fancy, roast pigeons will in some way fly into the mouths of the comrades, but they omit to show how this miracle is to take place. Where they do in fact commence to be more explicit in the domain of economics, they soon find themselves at a loss. One remembers, for instance, Proudhon's fantastic dreams of an exchange bank, so that it is not difficult to point out their logical fallacies. When Marxism solemnly forbids its adherents to concern themselves with economic problems beyond the expropriation of the expropriators, it adopts no new principle, since the utopians throughout their descriptions have also neglected all economic considerations and concentrated attention solely upon painting lurid pictures of existing conditions and glowing pictures of that golden age which is the natural consequence of the new dispensation. Whether one regards the coming of socialism as an unavoidable result of human evolution or considers the socialization of the means of production as the greatest blessing or the worst disaster that can befall mankind, one must at least concede that investigation into the conditions of society organized upon a socialist basis is of value as something more than a good mental exercise and a means of promoting political clearness and consistency of thought. In an age in which we are approaching nearer and nearer to socialism, and even in a certain sense are dominated by it, research into the problems of the socialist state acquires added significance for the explanation of what is going on around us. Previous analyses of the exchange economy no longer suffice for a proper understanding of social phenomena in Germany and its eastern neighbors today. Our task in this connection is to embrace within a fairly wide range the elements of socialistic society. Attempts to achieve clarity on this subject need no further justification. Section 1. The Distribution of Consumption Goods in the Socialist Commonwealth Under socialism, all the means of production are the property of the community. It is the community alone which can dispose of them and which determines their use in production. It goes without saying that the community will only be in a position to employ its powers of disposal through the setting up of a special body for the purpose. The structure of this body and the question of how it will articulate and represent the communal will is for us of subsidiary importance. One may assume that this last will depend upon the choice of personnel, and in cases where the power is not vested in a dictatorship, 
upon the majority vote of the members of the corporation. The owner of production goods, who has manufactured consumption goods and thus becomes their owner, now has the choice of either consuming them himself or of having them consumed by others. But where the community becomes the owner of consumption goods, which it has acquired in production, such a choice will no longer obtain. It cannot itself consume. It has perforce to allow others to do so. Who is to do the consuming, and what is to be consumed by each, is the crux of the problem of socialist distribution. It is characteristic of socialism that the distribution of consumption goods must be independent of the question of production and of its economic conditions. It is irreconcilable with the nature of the communal ownership of production goods that it should rely even for a part of its distribution upon the economic imputation of the yield to the particular factors of production. It is logically absurd to speak of the workers enjoying the full yield of his work, and then to subject to a separate distribution the shares of the material factors of production. For as we shall show, it lies in the very nature of socialist production that the shares of the particular factors of production in the national dividend cannot be ascertained, and that it is impossible, in fact, to gauge the relationship between expenditure and income. What basis will be chosen for the distribution of consumption goods among the individual comrades is for us a consideration of more or less secondary importance. Whether they will be apportioned according to individual needs, so that he gets most who needs most, or whether the superior man is to receive more than the inferior, or whether a strictly equal distribution is envisaged as the ideal, or whether service to the state is to be the criterion, is immaterial to the fact that in any event, the portions will be meted out by the state. Let us assume the simple proposition that distribution will be determined upon the principle that the state treats all its members alike. It is not difficult to conceive of a number of peculiarities, such as age, sex, health, occupation, etc., according to which what each receives will be graded. Each comrade receives a bundle of coupons, redeemable within a certain period, against a definite quantity of certain specified goods. And so he can eat several times a day, find permanent lodgings, occasional amusements, and a new suit every now and again. Whether such provision for these needs is ample or not will depend on the productivity of social labor. Moreover, it is not necessary that every man should consume the whole of his portion. He may let some of it perish without consuming it. He may give it away in presence. He may even, insofar as the nature of the goods permit, hoard it for future use. He can, however, also exchange some of them. The beer tippler will gladly dispose of non-alcoholic drinks allotted to him if he can get more beer in exchange, whilst the teetotaler will be ready to give up his portion of drink if he can get other goods for it. The art lover will be willing to dispose of his cinema tickets in order the more often to hear good music. The Philistine will be quite prepared to give up the tickets which admit him to art exhibitions in return for opportunities for pleasure he more readily understands. They will all welcome exchanges, but the material of these exchanges will always be consumption goods. Production goods in a socialist commonwealth are exclusively communal. They are an inalienable property of the community. 
and thus res extra commercium. The principle of exchange can thus operate freely in a socialist state within the narrow limits permitted. It need not always develop in the form of direct exchanges. The same grounds which have always existed for the building up of indirect exchange will continue in a socialist state to place advantages in the way of those who indulge in it. It follows that the socialist state will thus also afford room for the use of a universal medium of exchange, that is, of money. Its role will be fundamentally the same in a socialist as in a competitive society. In both, it serves as the universal medium of exchange. Yet the significance of money in a society where the means of production are state-controlled will be different from that which attaches to it in one where they are privately owned. It will be, in fact, incomparably narrower, since the material available for exchange will be narrower inasmuch as it will be confined to consumption goods. Moreover, just because no production good will ever become the object of exchange, it will be impossible to determine its monetary value. Money could never fill in a socialist state the role it fills in a competitive society in determining the value of production goods. Calculation in terms of money will here be impossible. The relationships which result from this system of exchange between comrades cannot be disregarded by those responsible for the administration and distribution of products. They must take these relationships as their basis when they seek to distribute goods per head in accordance with their exchange value. If, for instance, one cigar becomes equal to five cigarettes, it will be impossible for the administration to fix the arbitrary value of one cigar equals three cigarettes as a basis for the equal distribution of cigars and cigarettes respectively. If the tobacco coupons are not to be redeemed uniformly for each individual, partly against cigars, partly against cigarettes, and if some receive only cigars and others only cigarettes, either because that is their wish or because the coupon office cannot do anything else at the moment, the market conditions of exchange would then have to be observed. Otherwise, everybody getting cigarettes would suffer as against those getting cigars. For the man who gets one cigar can exchange it for five cigarettes, and he is only marked down with three cigarettes. Variations in exchange relations in the dealings between comrades will therefore entail corresponding variations in the administration's estimates of the representative character of the different consumption goods. Every such variation shows that a gap has appeared between the particular needs of comrades and their satisfactions, because in fact, some one commodity is more strongly desired than another. The administration will indeed take pains to bear this point in mind also as regards production. Articles in greater demand will have to be produced in greater quantities, while production of those which are less demanded will have to suffer a curtailment. Such control may be possible, but one thing it will not be free to do. It must not leave it to the individual comrade to ask the value of his tobacco ticket, either in cigars or cigarettes at will. If the comrade were to have the right of choice, then it might well be that the demand for cigars and cigarettes would exceed the supply, or vice versa, that cigars or cigarettes pile up in the distributing offices because no one will take them. If one adopts the standpoint of the labor theory of value, the problem freely admits of a simple solution. The comrade is then marked up for every hour's work put in, and this entitles him to receive the product of one hour's labor less the amount deducted 
for meeting such obligations of the community as a whole as maintenance of the unfit, education, etc. Taking the amount deducted for covering communal expenses as one half of the labor product, each worker who had worked a full hour would be entitled only to obtain such amount of the product as really answer to half an hour's work. Accordingly, anybody who is in a position to offer twice the labor time taken in manufacturing an article could take it from the market and transfer it to his own use or consumption. For the clarification of our problem, it will be better to assume that the state does not, in fact, deduct anything from the workers towards meeting its obligations, but instead imposes an income tax on its working members. In that way, every hour of work put in would carry with it the right of taking for oneself such amount of goods as entailed an hour's work. Yet such a manner of regulating distribution would be unworkable, since labor is not a uniform and homogeneous quantity. Between various types of labor, there is necessarily a qualitative difference, which leads to a different valuation according to the difference in the conditions of demand for and supply of their products. For instance, the supply of pictures cannot be increased ceteris paribus without damage to the quality of the product. Yet one cannot allow the laborer, who had put in an hour of the most simple type of labor, to be entitled to the product of an hour's higher type of labor. Hence, it becomes utterly impossible in any socialist community to posit a connection between the significance to the community of any type of labor and the apportionment of the yield of the communal process of production. The remuneration of labor cannot but proceed upon an arbitrary basis. It cannot be based upon the economic valuation of the yield as in a competitive state of society, where the means of production are in private hands, since, as we have seen, any such valuation is impossible in a socialist community. Economic realities impose clear limits to the community's power of fixing the remuneration of labor on an arbitrary basis. In no circumstances can the sum expended on wages exceed the income for any length of time. Within these limits it can do as it will. It can rule forthwith that all labor is to be reckoned of equal worth, so that every hour of work, whatever its quality, entails the same reward. It can equally make a distinction in regard to the quality of work done. Yet in both cases it must reserve the power to control the particular distribution of the labor product. It will never be able to arrange that he who has put in an hour's labor shall also have the right to consume the product of an hour's labor, even leaving aside the question of differences in the quality of the labor and the products, and assuming, moreover, that it would be possible to gauge the amount of labor represented by any given article. For over and above the actual labor, the production of all economic goods entails also the cost of materials. An article in which more raw material is used can never be reckoned of equal value with one in which less is used. Section 2. The Nature of Economic Calculation Every man who in the course of economic life takes a choice between the satisfaction of one need as against another, eo ipso makes a judgment of value. Such judgments of value at once include only the very satisfaction of the need itself, and from this they reflect back upon the goods of a lower and then further upon goods of a higher order. As a rule, the man who knows his own mind is in a position to value goods of a lower order. 
Under simple conditions, it is also possible for him without much ado to form some judgment of the significance to him of goods of a higher order. But where the state of affairs is more involved and their interconnections not so easily discernible, subtler means must be employed to accomplish a correct valuation of the means of production. It would not be difficult for a farmer in economic isolation to come by a distinction between the expansion of pasture farming and the development of activity in the hunting field. In such a case, the processes of production involved are relatively short, and the expense and income entailed can be easily gauged. But it is quite a different matter when the choice lies between the utilization of a water course for the manufacture of electricity or the extension of a coal mine, or the drawing up of plans for the better employment of the energies latent in raw coal. Here the roundabout processes of production are many, and each is very lengthy. Here the conditions necessary for the success of the enterprises which are to be initiated are diverse, so that one cannot apply merely vague valuations, but requires rather more exact estimates and some judgment of the economic issues actually involved. Valuation can only take place in terms of units, yet it is impossible that there should ever be a unit of subjective use value for goods. Marginal utility does not posit any unit of value, since it is obvious that the value of two units of a given stock is necessarily greater than, but less than double, the value of a single unit. Judgments of value do not measure, they merely establish grades and scales. Even Robinson Crusoe, when he has to make a decision where no ready judgment of value appears, and where he has to construct one upon the basis of a more or less exact estimate, cannot operate solely with subjective use value, but must take into consideration the intersubstitutability of goods on the basis of which he can then form his estimates. In such circumstances, it will be impossible for him to refer all things back to one unit. Rather, will he, so far as he can, refer all the elements which have to be taken into account in forming his estimate to those economic goods which can be apprehended by an obvious judgment of value, that is to say, to goods of a lower order and to pain cost. That this is only possible in very simple conditions is obvious. In the case of more complicated and more lengthy processes of production, it will plainly not answer. In an exchange economy, the objective exchange value of commodities enters as the unit of economic calculation. This entails a threefold advantage. In the first place, it renders it possible to base the calculation upon the valuations of all participants in trade. The subjective use value of each is not immediately comparable as a purely individual phenomenon with the subjective use value of other men. It only becomes so in exchange value, which arises out of the interplay of the subjective valuations of all who take part in exchange. But in that case, calculation by exchange value furnishes a control over the appropriate employment of goods. Anyone who wishes to make calculations in regard to a complicated process of production will immediately notice whether he has worked more economically than others or not. If he finds, from reference to the exchange relations obtaining in the market, that he will not be able to produce profitably, this shows that others understand how to make a better use of the goods of higher order in question. Lastly, calculation by exchange value makes it possible to refer values back to a unit. 
For this purpose, since goods are mutually substitutable in accordance with the exchange relations obtaining in the market, any possible good can be chosen. In a monetary economy, it is money that is so chosen. Monetary calculation has its limits. Money is no yardstick of value, nor yet of price. Value is not indeed measured in money, nor is price. They merely consist in money. Money, as an economic good, is not of stable value, as has been naively but wrongly assumed, in using it as a standard of deferred payments. The exchange relationship which obtains between money and goods is subjected to constant, if as a rule not too violent, fluctuations originating not only from the side of other economic goods, but also from the side of money. However, these fluctuations disturb value calculations only in the slightest degree, since usually, in view of the ceaseless alternations in other economic data, these calculations will refer only to comparatively short periods of time, periods in which good money, at least normally, undergoes comparatively trivial fluctuations in regard to its exchange relations. The inadequacy of the monetary calculation of value does not have its mainspring in the fact that value is then calculated in terms of a universal medium of exchange, namely money, but rather in the fact that in this system it is exchange value and not subjective use value on which the calculation is based. It can never obtain as a measure for the calculation of those value-determining elements which stand outside the domain of exchange transactions. If, for example, a man were to calculate the profitability of erecting a waterworks, he would not be able to include in his calculation the beauty of the waterfall which the scheme might impair, except that he may pay attention to the diminution of tourist traffic or similar changes which may be valued in terms of money. Yet these considerations might well prove one of the factors in deciding whether or not the building is to go up at all. It is customary to term such elements extra-economic. This perhaps is appropriate. We are not concerned with disputes over terminology, yet the considerations themselves can scarcely be termed irrational. In any place where men regard as significant the beauty of a neighborhood or of a building, the health, happiness, and contentment of mankind, the honor of individuals or nations, they are just as much motive forces of rational conduct as are economic factors, in the proper sense of the word, even where they are not substitutable against each other on the market, and therefore do not enter into exchange relationships. That monetary calculation cannot embrace these factors lies in its very nature. But for the purposes of our everyday economic life, this does not detract from the significance of monetary calculation. For all those ideal goods are goods of a lower order, and can hence be embraced straightway within the ambit of our judgment of values. There is therefore no difficulty in taking them into account, even though they must remain outside the sphere of monetary value. That they do not admit of such computation renders their consideration in the affairs of life easier and not harder. Once we see clearly how highly we value beauty, health, honor, and pride, surely nothing can prevent us from paying a corresponding regard to them. It may seem painful to any sensitive spirit to have to balance spiritual goods against material, but that is not the fault of monetary calculation. It lies in the very nature of things themselves. Even where judgments of value can be established directly without computation in value or in money, the necessity of choosing between material and spiritual satisfaction cannot be evaded. Robinson Crusoe and the socialist state have an equal obligation to make the choice. Anyone with a genuine sense of moral values experiences no hardship 
in deciding between honor and livelihood. He knows his plain duty. If a man cannot make honor his bread, yet can he renounce his bread for honor's sake. Only they who prefer to be relieved of the agony of this decision, because they cannot bring themselves to renounce material comfort for the sake of spiritual advantage, see in the choice a profanation of true values. Monetary calculation only has meaning within the sphere of economic organization. It is a system whereby the rules of economics may be applied in the disposition of economic goods. Economic goods only have part in this system in proportion to the extent to which they may be exchanged for money. Any extension of the sphere of monetary calculation causes misunderstanding. It cannot be regarded as constituting a kind of yardstick for the valuation of goods, and cannot be so treated in historical investigations into the development of social relationships. It cannot be used as a criterion of national wealth and income, nor as a means of gauging the value of goods which stand outside the sphere of exchange, as who should seek to estimate the extent of human losses through emigrations or wars in terms of money. This is mere sciolistic tomfoolery, however much it may be indulged in by otherwise perspicacious economists. Nonetheless, within these limits, which in economic life it never overlaps, monetary calculation fulfills all the requirements of economic calculation. It affords us a guide through the oppressive plentitude of economic potentialities. It enables us to extend to all goods of a higher order the judgment of value, which is bound up with and clearly evident in the case of goods ready for consumption, or at best of production goods of the lowest order. It renders their value capable of computation, and thereby gives us the primary basis for all economic operations with goods of a higher order. Without it, all production involving processes stretching well back in time, and all the longer roundabout processes of capitalistic production, would be gropings in the dark. There are two conditions governing the possibility of calculating value in terms of money. Firstly, not only must goods of a lower but also those of a higher order come within the ambit of exchange, if they are to be included. If they do not do so, exchange relationships would not arise. True enough, the considerations which must obtain in the case of Robinson Crusoe prepared within the range of his own hearth to exchange, by production, labor and flour for bread, are indistinguishable from those which obtain when he is prepared to exchange bread for clothes in the open market. And therefore, it is to some extent true to say that every economic action, including Robinson Crusoe's own production, can be termed exchange. Moreover, the mind of one man alone, be it ever so cunning, is too weak to grasp the importance of any single one among the countlessly many goods of higher order. No single man can ever master all the possibilities of production, innumerable as they are, as to be in a position to make straightway evident judgments of value without the aid of some system of computation. The distribution among a number of individuals of administrative control over economic goods in a community of men who take part in the labor of producing them and who are economically interested in them entails a kind of intellectual division of labor, which would not be possible without some system of calculating production and without economy. The second condition is that there exists, in fact, a universally employed medium of exchange, namely money, which plays the same part as a medium in the exchange of production goods also. 
If this were not the case, it would not be possible to reduce all exchange relationships to a common denominator. Only under simple conditions can economics dispense with monetary calculations. Within the narrow confines of household economy, for instance, where the father can supervise the entire economic management, it is possible to determine the significance of changes in the processes of production without such aids to the mind, and yet with more or less of accuracy. In such a case, the process develops under a relatively limited use of capital. Few of the capitalistic roundabout processes of production are here introduced. What is manufactured is, as a rule, consumption goods, or at least such goods of a higher order as stand very near to consumption goods. The division of labor is, in its rudimentary stages, one and the same laborer controls the labor of what is in effect a complete process of production of goods ready for consumption from beginning to end. All this is different, however, in developed communal production. The experiences of a remote and bygone period of simple production do not provide any sort of argument for establishing the possibility of an economic system without monetary calculation. In the narrow confines of a closed household economy, it is possible throughout to review the process of production from beginning to end and to judge all the time whether one or another mode of procedure yields more consumable goods. This, however, is no longer possible in the incomparably more involved circumstances of our own social economy. It will be evident, even in the socialist society, that 1,000 hectoliters of wine are better than 800, and it is not difficult to decide whether it desires 1,000 hectoliters of wine rather than 500 of oil. There is no need for any system of calculation to establish this fact. The deciding element is the will of the economic subjects involved. But once this decision has been taken, the real task of rational economic direction only commences, i.e. economically, to place the means at the service of the end. That can only be done with some kind of economic calculation. The human mind cannot orientate itself properly among the bewildering mass of intermediate products and potentialities of production without such aid. It would simply stand perplexed before the problems of management and location. It is an illusion to imagine that in a socialist state, calculation in natura can take the place of monetary calculation. Calculation in natura, in an economy without exchange, can embrace consumption goods only. It completely fails when it comes to dealing with goods of a higher order. And as soon as one gives up the conception of a freely established monetary price for goods of a higher order, Rational production becomes completely impossible. Every step that takes us away from private ownership of the means of production and from the use of money also takes us away from rational economics. It is easy to overlook this fact, considering that the extent to which socialism is in evidence among us constitutes only a socialistic oasis in a society with monetary exchange, which is still a free society to a certain degree. In one sense, we may agree with the socialist assertion, which is otherwise entirely untenable and advanced only as a demagogic point, to the effect that the nationalization and municipalization of enterprise is not really socialism, since these concerns in their business organizations are so much dependent upon the environing economic system with its free commerce that they cannot be said to partake today of the really essential nature of a socialist economy. In state and municipal undertakings, 
technical improvements are introduced because their effect in similar private enterprises, domestic or foreign, can be noticed, and because those private industries which produce the materials for these improvements give the impulse for their introduction. In these concerns, the advantages of reorganization can be established because they operate within the sphere of a society based upon private ownership of the means of production and upon the system of monetary exchange, being thus capable of computation and account. This state of affairs, however, could not obtain in the case of socialist concerns operating in a purely socialistic environment. Without economic calculation, there can be no economy. Hence, in a socialist state, wherein the pursuit of economic calculation is impossible, there can be, in our sense of the term, no economy whatsoever. In trivial and secondary matters, rational conduct might still be possible, but in general, it would be impossible to speak of rational production any more. There would be no means of determining what was rational, and hence, it is obvious that production could never be directed by economic considerations. What this means is clear enough, apart from its effects, on the supply of commodities. Rational conduct would be divorced from the very ground which is its proper domain. Would there in fact be any such thing as rational conduct at all, or indeed such a thing as rationality and logic and thought itself? Historically, human rationality is a development of economic life. Could it then obtain when divorced therefrom? For a time, the remembrance of the experiences gained in a competitive economy, which has obtained for some thousands of years, may provide a check to the complete collapse of the art of economy. The older methods of procedure might be retained not because of their rationality, but because they appear to be hallowed by tradition. Actually, they would meanwhile have become irrational as no longer comporting with the new conditions. Eventually, through the general reconstruction of economic thought, they will experience alterations which will render them in fact uneconomic. The supply of goods will no longer proceed anarchically of its own accord. That is true. All transactions which serve the purpose of meeting requirements will be subject to the control of a supreme authority. Yet in place of the economy of the anarchic method of production, recourse will be had to the senseless output of an absurd apparatus. The wheels will turn, but will run to no effect. One may anticipate the nature of the future socialist society. There will be hundreds and thousands of factories in operation. Very few of these will be producing wares ready for use. In the majority of cases, what will be manufactured will be unfinished goods and production goods. All these concerns will be interrelated. Every good will go through a whole series of stages before it is ready for use. In the ceaseless toil and moil of this process, however, the administration will be without any means of testing their bearings. It will never be able to determine whether a given good has not been kept for a superfluous length of time in the necessary processes of production or whether work and material have not been wasted in its completion. How will it be able to decide whether this or that method of production is the more profitable? At best, it will only be able to compare the quality and quantity of the consumable end product produced, but will in the rarest cases be in a position to compare the expenses entailed in production. It will know, or think it knows, the ends to be achieved by economic organization, and will have to regulate its activities accordingly, i.e., it will have to attain those ends with the least expense. It will have to make its computations with a view to finding the cheapest way. This computation will naturally have to be a value computation. It is eminently clear and requires no further proof 
that it cannot be of a technical character and that it cannot be based upon the objective use value of goods and services. Now, in the economic system of private ownership of the means of production, the system of computation by value is necessarily employed by each independent member of society. Everybody participates in its emergence in a double way, on the one hand as a consumer and on the other as a producer. As a consumer, he establishes a scale of valuation for goods ready for use and consumption. As a producer, he puts goods of a higher order into such use as produces the greatest return. In this way, all goods of a higher order receive a position in the scale of valuations in accordance with the immediate state of social conditions of production and of social needs. Through the interplay of these two processes of valuation, means will be afforded for governing both consumption and production by the economic principle throughout. Every graded system of pricing proceeds from the fact that men always and ever harmonize their own requirements with their estimation of economic facts. All this is necessarily absent from a socialist state. The administration may know exactly what goods are most urgently needed, but in so doing it has only found what is in fact but one of the two necessary prerequisites for economic calculation. In the nature of the case, it must, however, dispense with the other, the valuation of the means of production. It may establish the value attained by the totality of the means of production. This is obviously identical with that of all the needs thereby satisfied. It may also be able to calculate the value of any means of production by calculating the consequence of its withdrawal in relation to the satisfaction of needs. Yet, it cannot reduce this value to the uniform expression of a money price, as can a competitive economy, wherein all prices can be referred back to a common expression in terms of money. In a socialist commonwealth, which, whilst it need not of necessity dispense with money altogether, yet finds it impossible to use money as an expression of the price of the factors of production, including labor, money can play no role in economic calculation. Picture the building of a new railroad. Should it be built at all, and if so, which out of a number of conceivable roads should be built? In a competitive and monetary economy, this question would be answered by monetary calculation. The new road will render less expensive the transport of some goods, and it may be possible to calculate whether this reduction of expense transcends that involved in the building and upkeep of the next line. That can only be calculated in money. It is not possible to attain the desired end merely by counterbalancing the various physical expenses and physical savings, where one cannot express hours of labor, iron, coal, all kinds of building material, machines, and other things necessary for the construction and upkeep of the railroad in a common unit, it is not possible to make calculations at all. The drawing up of bills on an economic basis is only possible where all the goods concerned can be referred back to money. Admittedly, monetary calculation has its inconveniences and serious defects, but we have certainly nothing better to put in its place. And for the practical purposes of life, monetary calculation as it exists under a sound monetary system always suffices. Were we to dispense with it, any economic system of calculation would become absolutely impossible. The socialist society would know how to look after itself. It would issue an edict and decide for or against the projected building. Yet this decision would depend at best upon vague estimates. It would never be based upon the foundation of an exact calculation of value. The static state can dispense with economic calculation, 
for here the same events in economic life are ever recurring. And if we assume that the first disposition of the static socialist economy follows on the basis of the final state of the competitive economy, we might, at all events, conceive of a socialist production system which is rationally controlled from an economic point of view. But this is only conceptually possible. For the moment we leave aside the fact that a static state is impossible in real life, as our economic data are forever changing, so that the static nature of economic activity is only a theoretical assumption, corresponding to no real state of affairs, however necessary it may be for our thinking and for the perfection of our knowledge of economics. Even so, we must assume that the transition to socialism must, as a consequence of the leveling out of the differences in income and the resultant readjustments in consumption and therefore production, change all economic data in such a way that a connecting link with the final state of affairs in the previously existing competitive economy becomes impossible. But then we have the spectacle of a socialist economic order floundering in the ocean of possible and conceivable economic combinations without the compass of economic calculation. Thus, in the socialist commonwealth, every economic change becomes an undertaking whose success can be neither appraised in advance nor later retrospectively determined. There is only groping in the dark. Socialism is the abolition of rational economy. Section 3. Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth Are we really dealing with the necessary consequences of common ownership of the means of production? Is there no way in which some kind of economic calculation might be tied up with a socialist system? In every great enterprise, each particular business or branch of business is to some extent independent in its accounting. It reckons the labor and material against each other, and it is always possible for each individual group to strike a particular balance and to approach the economic results of its activities from an accounting point of view. We can thus ascertain with what success each particular section has labored, and accordingly draw conclusions about the reorganization, curtailment, abandonment, or expansion of existing groups and about the institution of new ones. Admittedly, some mistakes are inevitable in such a calculation. They arise partly from the difficulties consequent upon an allocation of general expenses. Yet other mistakes arise from the necessity of calculating with what are not from many points of view rigorously ascertainable data, e.g. when in the ascertainment of the profitability of a certain method of procedure, we compute the amortization of the machines used on the assumption of a given duration for their usefulness. Still, all such mistakes can be confined within certain narrow limits, so that they do not disturb the net result of the calculation. What remains of uncertainty comes into the calculation of the uncertainty of future conditions, which is an inevitable concomitant of the dynamic nature of economic life. It seems tempting to try to construct by analogy a separate estimation of the particular production groups in the socialist state also, but it is quite impossible. For each separate calculation of the particular branches of one and the same enterprise depends exclusively on the fact that it is precisely in market dealings that market prices to be taken as the bases of calculation are formed 
for all kinds of goods and labor employed. Where there is no free market, there is no pricing mechanism. Without a pricing mechanism, there is no economic calculation. We might conceive of a situation in which exchange between particular branches of business is permitted so as to obtain the mechanism of exchange relations, prices, and thus create a basis for economic calculation even in the socialist commonwealth. Within the framework of a uniform economy, knowing not private ownership of the means of production, individual labor groups are constituted independent and authoritative disposers, which have indeed to behave in accordance with the directions of the Supreme Economic Council, but which, nevertheless, assign each other material goods and services only against a payment, which would have to be made in the general medium of exchange. It is roughly in this way that we conceive of the organization of the socialist running of business when we nowadays talk of complete socialization and the like. But we have still not come to the crucial point. Exchange relations between production goods can only be established on the basis of private ownership of the means of production. When the coal syndicate provides the iron syndicate with coal, no price can be formed except when both syndicates are the owners of the means of production employed in their business. This would not be socialization, but workers' capitalism and syndicalism. The matter is indeed very simple for those socialist theorists who rely on the labor theory of value. As soon as society takes possession of the means of production and applies them to production in their directly socialized form, each individual's labor, however different its specific utility may be, becomes a priori and directly social labor. The amount of social labor invested in a product need not then be established indirectly. Daily experience immediately tells us how much is necessary on an average. Society can simply calculate how many hours of labor are invested in a steam engine, a quarter of last harvest's wheat, and 100 yards of linen of given quality. To be sure, society will also have to know how much labor is needed to produce any consumption good. It will have to arrange its production plan according to its means of production to which labor especially belongs. The utility yielded by the various consumption goods weighted against each other and against the amount of labor required to produce them will ultimately determine the plan. People will make everything simple without the mediation of the notorious value. Here it is not our task once more to advance critical objections against the labor theory of value. In this connection, they can only interest us insofar as they are relevant to an assessment of the applicability of labor in the value computations of a socialist economy. On a first impression, calculation in terms of labor also takes into consideration the natural non-human conditions of production. The law of diminishing returns is already allowed for in the concept of socially necessary average labor time to the extent that its operation is due to the variety of the natural conditions of production. If the demand for a commodity increases and worse natural resources must be exploited, then the average socially necessary labor time required for the production of a unit increases too. If more favorable natural resources are discovered, 
the amount of socially necessary labor diminishes. The consideration of the natural condition of production suffices only in so far as it is reflected in the amount of labor socially necessary. But it is in this respect that valuation in terms of labor fails. It leaves the employment of material factors of production out of account. Let the amount of socially necessary labor time required for the production of each of the commodities P and Q be 10 hours. Further, in addition to labor, the production of both P and Q requires the raw material A, a unit of which is produced by an hour's socially necessary labor. Two units of A and eight hours labor are used in the production of P, and one unit of A and nine hours labor in the production of Q. In terms of labor, P and Q are equivalent, but in value terms, P is more valuable than Q. The former is false, and only the latter corresponds to the nature and purpose of calculation. True, the surplus, by which according to value calculation, P is more valuable than Q, this material substratum is given by nature without any addition from man. Still, the fact that it is only present in such quantities that it becomes an object of economizing must be taken into account in some form or other in value calculation. The second defect in calculation in terms of labor is the ignoring of the different qualities of labor. To Marx, all human labor is economically of the same kind. It is always the productive expenditure of human brain, brawn, nerve, and hand. Skilled labor counts only as intensified or rather multiplied simple labor, so that a smaller quantity of skilled labor is equal to a larger quantity of simple labor. Experience shows that skilled labor can always be reduced in this way to the terms of simple labor. No matter that a commodity be the product of the most highly skilled labor, its value can be equated with that of the product of simple labor, so that it represents merely a definite amount of simple labor. Bombavirk is not far wrong when he calls this argument a theoretical juggle of almost stupefying naivete. To judge Marx's view, we need not ask if it is possible to discover a single uniform physiological measure of all human labor, whether it be physical or mental, for it is certain that there exist among men varying degrees of capacity and dexterity, which cause the products and services of labor to have varying qualities. What must be conclusive in deciding the question whether reckoning in terms of labor is applicable or not is whether it is or is not possible to bring different kinds of labor under a common denominator without the mediation of the economic subject's valuation of their products. The proof Marx attempts to give is not successful. Experience indeed shows that goods are consumed under exchange relations without regard of the fact of their being produced by simple or complex labor. But this would only be a proof that given amounts of simple labor are directly made equal to given amounts of complex labor. If it were shown that labor is their source of exchange value. This not only is not demonstrated, but is what Marx is trying to demonstrate by means of these very arguments. No more is it a proof of this homogeneity that rates of substitution between simple and complex labor 
are manifested in the wage rate in an exchange economy, a fact to which Marx does not allude in this context. This equalizing process is a result of market transactions and not its antecedent. Calculation in terms of labor would have to set up an arbitrary proportion for the substitution of complex by simple labor, which excludes its employment for purposes of economic administration. It was long supposed that the labor theory of value was indispensable to socialism so that the demand for the nationalization of the means of production should have an ethical basis. Today, we know this for the error it is, although the majority of socialist supporters have thus employed this misconception, and although Marx, however much he fundamentally took another point of view, was not altogether free from it, it is clear that the political call for the introduction of socialized production neither requires nor can obtain the support of the labor theory of value on the one hand, and that on the other, those people holding different views on the nature and origin of economic value can be socialist according to their sentiments. Yet the labor theory of value is inherently necessary for the supporters of socialist production in a sense other than that usually intended. In the main, socialist production might only appear rationally realizable if it provided an objectively recognizable unit of value which would permit of economic calculation in an economy where neither money nor exchange were present. And only Section 4. Responsibility and Initiative in Communal Concerns The problem of responsibility and initiative in socialist enterprises is closely connected with that of economic calculation. It is now universally agreed that the exclusion of free initiative and individual responsibility on which the successes of private enterprise depend constitutes the most serious menace to socialist economic organization. The majority of socialists silently pass this problem by. Others believe they can answer it with an allusion to the directors of companies, in spite of the fact that they are not the owners of the means of production. Enterprises under their control have flourished. If society, instead of company shareholders, becomes the owner of the means of production, nothing will have altered. The directors would not work less satisfactorily for society than for shareholders. We must distinguish between two groups of joint stock companies and similar concerns. In the first group, consisting for the large part of smaller companies, a few individuals unite in a common enterprise in the legal form of a company. They are often the heirs of the founders of the company, or often previous competitors who have amalgamated. Here, the actual control and management of business is in the hands of the shareholders themselves, or at least of some of the shareholders, who do business in their own interest, or in that of closely related shareholders, such as wives, minors, etc. The directors, in their capacity, as members of the board of management, or of the board of control, and sometimes also in an attenuated legal capacity, themselves exercise the decisive influence in the conduct of affairs. Nor is this affected by the circumstance that sometimes part of the share capital is held by a financial consortium or bank. Here, in fact, the company is only differentiated from the public commercial company by its legal form. The situation is quite different in the case of large-scale companies, where only a fraction of the shareholders, i.e. the big shareholders, 
participate in the actual control of the enterprise, and these usually have the same interest in the firm's prosperity as any property holder. Still, it may well be that they have interests other than those of the vast majority of small shareholders who are excluded from the management even if they own the larger part of the share capital. Severe collisions may occur when the firm's business is so handled on behalf of the directors that the shareholders are injured. But, be that as it may, it is clear that the real holders of power in companies run the business in their own interest, whether it coincides with that of the shareholders or not. In the long run, it will generally be to the advantage of the solid company administrator, who is not merely bent on making a transient profit, to represent the shareholders' interests only in every case, and to avoid manipulations which might damage them. This holds good in the first instance for banks and financial groups, which should not trifle at the public's expense with the credit they enjoy. Thus, it is not merely on the prescriptiveness of ethical motives that the success of companies depends. The situation is completely transformed when an undertaking is nationalized. The motive force disappears with the exclusion of the material interests of private individuals, and if the state and municipal enterprises thrive at all, they owe it to the taking over of management from private enterprise, or to the fact that they are ever driven to reforms and innovations by the businessmen from whom they purchase their instruments of production and raw material. Since we are in a position to survey decades of state and socialist endeavor, it is now generally recognized that there is no internal pressure to reform and improvement of production in socialist undertakings, that they cannot be adjusted to the changing conditions of demand, and that in a word they are a dead limb in the economic organism. All attempts to breathe life into them have so far been in vain. It was supposed that a reform in the system of remuneration might achieve the desired end. If the managers of these enterprises were interested in the yield, it was thought they would be in a position comparable to that of the manager of large-scale companies. This is a fatal error. The managers of large-scale companies are bound up with the interests of the businesses they administer in an entirely different way from what could be the case in public concerns. They are either already owners of a not inconsiderable fraction of the share capital, or hope to become so in due course. Further, they are in a position to obtain profits by stock exchange speculation in the company's shares. They have the prospect of bequeathing their positions to, or at least securing part of their influence for their heirs. The type to which the success of joint stock companies is to be attributed is not that of a complacently prosperous managing director resembling the civil servant in his outlook and experience. Rather, it is precisely the manager, promoter, and man of affairs who is himself interested as a shareholder, whom it is the aim of all nationalization and municipalization to exclude. It is not generally legitimate to appeal in a socialist context to such arguments in order to ensure the success of an economic order built on socialist foundations. All socialist systems, including that of Karl Marx and his orthodox supporters, proceed from the assumption that in a socialist society, a conflict between the interests of the particular and the general could not possibly arise.
Everybody will act in his own interest in giving of his best because he participates in the product of all economic activity. The obvious objection that the individual is very little concerned whether he himself is diligent and enthusiastic and that it is of greater moment to him that everybody else should be is either completely ignored or is insufficiently dealt with by them. They believe they can construct a socialist commonwealth on the basis of the categorical imperative alone. How lightly it is their wont to proceed in this way is best shown by Kautsky when he says, if socialism is a social necessity, then it would be human nature and not socialism which would have to readjust itself if ever the two clashed. This is nothing but sheer utopianism. But even if we for the moment grant that these utopian expectations can actually be realized, that each individual in a socialist society will exert himself with the same zeal as he does today in a society where he is subjected to the pressure of free competition, there still remains the problem of measuring the result of economic activity in a socialist commonwealth which does not permit of any economic calculation. We cannot act economically if we are not in a position to understand economizing. A popular slogan affirms that if we think less bureaucratically and more commercially in communal enterprises, they will work just as well as private enterprises. The leading positions must be occupied by merchants, and then income will grow apace. Unfortunately, commercial-mindedness is not something external, which can be arbitrarily transferred. A merchant's qualities are not the property of a person depending on inborn aptitude, nor are they acquired by studies in a commercial school or by working in a commercial house, or even by having been a businessman oneself for some period of time. The entrepreneur's commercial attitude and activity arise from his position in the economic process and are lost with its disappearance. When a successful businessman is appointed the manager of a public enterprise, he may still bring with him certain experiences from his previous occupation and be able to turn them to good account in a routine fashion for some time. Still, with his entry into communal activity, he ceases to be a merchant and becomes as much a bureaucrat as any other placeman in the public employ. It is not a knowledge of bookkeeping, of business organization, or of the style of commercial correspondence, or even a dispensation from a commercial high school, which makes the merchant, but his characteristic position in the production process, which allows of the identification of the firm's and his own interests. It is no solution of the problem when Otto Bauer, in his most recently published work, proposes that the directors of the National Central Bank on whom leadership in the economic process will be conferred should be nominated by a collegium to which representatives of the teaching staff of the commercial high schools would also belong. Like Plato's philosophers, the directors so appointed may well be the wisest and best of their kind, but they cannot be merchants in their posts as leaders of a socialist society, even if they should have been previously. It is a general complaint that the administration of public undertakings lacks initiative. It is believed that this might be remedied by changes in organization. This, also, is a grievous mistake. The management of a socialist concern cannot entirely be placed in the hands of a single individual, because there must always be the suspicion that he will permit errors inflicting heavy damages on the community. But if the important conclusions are made dependent on the votes of committees, or on the consent of the relevant government offices, then limitations are imposed on the individual's initiative. Committees 
are rarely inclined to introduce bold innovations. The lack of free initiative in public business rests not on an absence of organization. It is inherent in the nature of the business itself. One cannot transfer free disposal of the factors of production to an employee, however high his rank, and this becomes even less possible the more strongly he is materially interested in the successful performance of his duties. For in practice, the propertyless manager can only be held morally responsible for losses incurred, and so ethical losses are juxtaposed with opportunities for material gain. The property owner, on the other hand, himself bears responsibility, as he himself must primarily feel the loss arising from unwisely conducted business. It is precisely in this section 5, the most recent socialist doctrines and the problem of economic calculation. Since recent events helped socialist parties to obtain power in Russia, Hungary, Germany, Austria, and have thus made the execution of a socialist nationalization program a topical issue, Marxist writers have themselves begun to deal more closely with the problems of the regulation of the socialist commonwealth. But even now, they still cautiously avoid the crucial question, leaving it to be tackled by the despised utopians. They themselves prefer to confine their attention to what is to be done in the immediate future. They are forever drawing up programs of the path to socialism and not of socialism itself. The only possible conclusion from all these writings is that they are not even conscious of the larger problem of economic calculation in a socialist society. To Otto Bauer, the nationalization of the banks appears the final and decisive step in the carrying through of the socialist nationalization program. If all the banks are nationalized and amalgamated into a single central bank, then its administrative board becomes the supreme economic authority, the chief administrative organ of the whole economy. Only by nationalization of the banks does society obtain the power to regulate its labor according to a plan and to distribute its resources rationally among the various branches of production so as to adapt them to the nation's needs. Bauer is not discussing the monetary arrangements which will prevail in the socialist commonwealth after the completion of the nationalization of the banks, like other Marxists, he is trying to show how simply and obviously the future socialist order of society will evolve from the conditions prevailing in a developed capitalist economy. It suffices to transfer to the nation's representatives the power now exercised by bank shareholders through the administrative boards they elect. In order to socialize the banks, and thus to lay the last brick on the edifice of socialism. Bauer leaves his readers completely ignorant of the fact that the nature of the banks is entirely changed in the process of nationalization and amalgamation into one central bank. Once the banks merge into a single bank, their essence is wholly transformed. They are then in a position to issue credit without any limitation. In this fashion, the monetary system as we know it today disappears of itself. When, in addition, the single central bank is nationalized in a society, which is otherwise already completely socialized, 
market dealings disappear, and all exchange transactions are abolished. At the same time, the bank ceases to be a bank. Its specific functions are extinguished, for there is no longer any place for it in such a society. It may be that the name bank is retained, that the Supreme Economic Council of the Socialist Community is called the Board of Directors of the Bank, and that they hold their meetings in a building formerly occupied by a bank. But it is no longer a bank. It fulfills none of those functions which a bank fulfills in an economic system resting on the private ownership of the means of production and the use of a general medium of exchange, money. It no longer distributes any credit, for a socialist society makes credit of necessity impossible. Bauer himself does not tell us what a bank is, but he begins his chapter on the nationalization of the banks with the sentence, All disposable capital flows into a common pool in the banks. As a Marxist, must he not raise the question of what the bank's activities will be after the abolition of capitalism? All other writers who have grappled with the problems of the organization of the socialist commonwealth are guilty of similar confusions. They do not realize that the bases of economic calculation are removed by the exclusion of exchange and the pricing mechanism, and that something must be substituted in its place if all economy is not to be abolished and a hopeless chaos is not to result. People believe that socialist institutions might evolve without further ado from those of a capitalist economy. This is not at all the case, and it becomes all the more grotesque when we talk of banks, bank management, etc., in a socialist commonwealth. Reference to the conditions that have developed in Russia and Hungary under Soviet rule proves nothing. What we have there is nothing but a picture of the destruction of an existing order of social production, for which a closed peasant household economy has been substituted. All branches of production, depending on social division of labor, are in a state of entire dissolution. What is happening under the rule of Lenin and Trotsky is merely destruction and annihilation. Whether, as the liberals hold, socialism must inevitably draw these consequences in its train, or whether, as the socialists retort, this is only a result of the fact that the Soviet Republic is attacked from without, is a question of no interest to us in this context. All that has to be established is the fact that the Soviet Socialist Commonwealth has not even begun to discuss the problem of economic calculation, nor has it any cause to do so. For where things are still produced for the market in Soviet Russia in spite of governmental prohibitions, they are valued in terms of money, for there exists, to that extent, private ownership of the means of production and goods are sold against money. Even the government cannot deny the necessity, which it confirms by increasing the amount of money in circulation, of retaining a monetary system for at least the transition period. That the essence of the problem to be faced has not yet come to light in Soviet Russia, Lenin's statements in his essay on Die nächsten Aufgaben der Sowjetmacht best show. In the dictator's deliberations, there ever recurs the thought that the immediate and most pressing task of Russian communism is the organization of bookkeeping and control of those concerns in which the capitalists have already been expropriated and of all other economic concerns. Even so, Lenin is far from realizing that an entirely new problem is here involved which it is impossible to solve with the conceptual instruments of bourgeois culture. Like a real politician, he does not bother with issues beyond his nose. He still finds himself surrounded by monetary transactions, and does not notice that with progressive socialization, money also necessarily loses its function as the medium of exchange in general use, to the extent 
that private property and with it exchange disappear. The implication of Lenin's reflections is that he would like to reintroduce into Soviet business bourgeois bookkeeping carried on on a monetary basis. Therefore, he also desires to restore bourgeois experts to a state of grace. For the rest, Lenin is as little aware as Bauer of the fact that in a socialist commonwealth, the functions of the bank are unthinkable in their existing sense. He wishes to go farther with the nationalization of the banks and to proceed to a transformation of the banks into the nodal point of social bookkeeping under socialism. Lenin's ideas on the socialist economic system to which he is striving to lead his people are generally obscure. The socialist state, he says, can only arise as a net of producing and consuming communes which conscientiously record their production and consumption, go about their labor economically, uninterruptedly raise their labor productivity, and thus attain the possibility of lowering the working day to seven or six hours or even lower. Every factor, every village, appears as a production and consumption commune having the right and obligation to apply the general Soviet legislation in its own way, not in the sense of its violation, but in the sense of the variety of its forms of realization, and to solve, in its own way, the problems of calculating the production and distribution of products. The chief communes must and will serve the most backward ones as educators, teachers, and stimulating leaders. The successes of the chief communes must be broadcast in all their details in order to provide a good example. The communes showing good business results should be immediately rewarded by a curtailment of the working day and with an increase in wages and by allowing more attention to be paid to cultural and aesthetic goods and values. We can infer that Lenin's ideal is a state of society in which the means of production are not the property of a few districts, municipalities, or even of the workers in the concern, but of the whole community. His ideal is socialist and not syndicalist. This need not be specially stressed for a Marxist such as Lenin. It is not extraordinary of Lenin the theorist, but of Lenin the statesman, who is the leader of the syndicalist and small-holding peasant Russian revolution. However, at the moment we are engaged with the writer Lenin and may consider his ideal separately, without letting ourselves be disturbed by the picture of sober reality. According to Lenin the theorist, every large agricultural and industrial concern is a member of the great commonwealth of labor. Those who are active in this commonwealth have the right of self-government. They exercise a profound influence on the direction of production and again on the distribution of the goods they are assigned for consumption. Still, labor is the property of the whole society, and as its product belongs to society also, it therefore disposes of its distribution. How, we must now ask, is calculation in the economy carried on in a socialist commonwealth which is so organized? Lenin gives us a most inadequate answer by referring us back to statistics. We must bring statistics to the masses, make it popular, so that the active population will gradually learn by themselves to understand and realize how much and what kind of work must be done, how much and what kind of recreation should be taken, so that the comparison of the economy's industrial results in the case of individual communes becomes the object of general interest and education. From these scanty illusions, it is impossible to infer what Lenin understands by statistics and whether he is thinking of monetary or in natura computation. In any case, we must refer back to what we have said about the impossibility of learning the money prices of production goods in a socialist commonwealth 
and about the difficulties standing in the way of in natura valuation. Statistics would only be applicable to economic calculation if it could go beyond the in natura calculation, whose ill-suitedness for this purpose we have demonstrated. It is naturally impossible where no exchange relations are formed between goods in the process of trade. Conclusion It must follow, from what we have been able to establish in our previous arguments, that the protagonists of a socialist system of production claim preference for it on the ground of greater rationality as against an economy so constituted as to depend on private ownership of the means of production. We have no need to consider this opinion within the framework of the present essay, insofar as it falls back on the assertion that rational economic activity necessarily cannot be perfect because certain forces are operative which hinder its pursuance. In this connection, we may only pay attention to the economic and technical reason for this opinion. There hovers before the holders of this tenet a muddled conception of technical rationality, which stands in antithesis to economic rationality, on which they are not very clear. They are wont to overlook the fact that all technical rationality of production is identical with a low level of specific expenditure in the processes of production. They overlook the fact that technical calculation is not enough to realize the degree of general and teleological expediency of an event, that it can only grade individual events according to their significance, but that it can never guide us in those judgments which are demanded by the economic complex as a whole. Only because of the fact that technical considerations can be based on profitability can we overcome the difficulty arising from the complexity of the relations between the mighty system of present-day production on the one hand and demand and the efficiency of enterprises and economic units on the other. And can we gain the complete picture of the situation in its totality, which rational economic activity requires. These theories are dominated by a confused conception of the primacy of objective use value. In fact, so far as economic administration is concerned, objective use value can only acquire significance for the economy through the influence it derives from subjective use value on the formation of the exchange relations of economic goods. A second confused idea is inexplicably involved. The observer's personal judgment of the utility of goods, as opposed to the judgments of the people participating in economic transactions. If anyone finds it irrational to spend as much as is expended in society on smoking, drinking, and similar enjoyments, then doubtless he is right from the point of view of his own personal scale of values. But in so judging, he is ignoring the fact that economy is a means, and that without prejudice to the rational considerations influencing its pattern, the scale of ultimate ends is a matter for conation and not for cognition. The knowledge of the fact that rational economic activity is impossible in a socialist commonwealth cannot, of course, be used as an argument either for or against socialism. Whoever has prepared himself to enter upon socialism on ethical grounds, on the supposition that the provision of goods of a lower order for human beings under a system of common ownership of the means of production is diminished, or 
whoever is guided by ascetic ideals in his desire for socialism, will not allow himself to be influenced in his endeavors by what we have said. Still less will those culture socialists be deterred who, like Muckle, expect from socialism primarily the dissolution of the most frightful of all barbarisms, capitalist rationality. But he who expects a rational economic system from socialism will be forced to re-examine his views.